This is the History of the World podcast with me, Chris Hasler. And this is Volume 2, The Ancient World. Episode 33, The Archaic Americas. I have received a number of messages showing enthusiasm about the ancient history of the Americas. The last two episodes were an obvious choice geographically. It was an obvious choice to focus on Mesoamerica, and it was also an obvious choice to focus on Peru. These two areas of the Americas advanced through the earliest natural progressions the quickest. Firstly, from hunter-gathering to pastoralism and farming, and then from nomadic lifestyles and camps to sedentary life in constructed settlements. Then these settlements would grow in size and require stronger governance to succeed. Successful governance relied on having a stronger common psychological bond within the population, which required greater representation via temple complexes. So we followed these stories. However, it is a fact that populations spread out to occupy all areas of the Americas and diversified according to the areas in which they resided. If we look at the Americas, it is a huge continent which stretches from the Arctic in the far north with its cold polar conditions to the more temperate climates of the subarctic woodlands and grasslands of modern Canada and the United States, down to the subtropical and desert lands of the southern states of Mexico, the tropical rainforests of Central America and the Amazon, interspersed with the dry savanna grasslands of South America, and finally the Patagonian steppe and semi-desert to the south, and the highlands of the Andes in the west. This very wide array of climates and altitudes required societies to specialise to these conditions and ultimately become very different from one another. So we take a grand tour of the Americas this week and explore the different conditions of the different regions and observe how these societies developed up to the first millennium BCE and therefore set ourselves up for the stories at the final 2,000 years of the pre-Columbian Americas. Mesoamerica We have already discovered a lot of interesting stuff about Mesoamerica. Let us give a well-rounded analysis of Mesoamerica during the ancient period. Firstly, let's try to describe the geography of Mesoamerica. The narrow strip of land which connects North America to South America. Roughly speaking, the northern half of Mesoamerica is the country of Mexico. And then as the isthmus bends eastwards, the Yucatan Peninsula extends to the north and the rest of the Mesoamerican nation-states lead to Colombia in South America. The Olmec culture 
from episode 31 emerged in the far south of modern Mexican lands, so around halfway down the isthmus, just before the Yucatan Peninsula. Before the emergence of the Olmec culture, Mesoamericans were starting to make the transition from hunter-gatherer lifestyles towards sedentary lifestyles. At the start of the second millennium BCE, a site known to us as Monte Alto had developed along the Pacific coast, which may have predated the Olmec sites, which were nearer to the Gulf Coast. The Monte Alto culture built buildings and even a pyramid. So it could be fair to say that it either influenced the Olmec or it drew from the same influence as the Olmec. The Monte Alto culture was even producing their own colossal heads, which is something that the Olmecs are famed for. So we can definitely see a progression of cultures, influencing and supplanting one another as time moved forward. Now, we're already well aware of the Olmecs as we devoted an entire episode to them back in episode 31. The centre of Olmec culture is on the Isthmus of Tehuantepec, which is the shortest piece of land between the Pacific Ocean and the Gulf of Mexico. Heading west, we head into the heart of Mexico and the capital, Mexico City. It is here that we find the Valley of Mexico, a place where another culture began to flourish during the second millennium BCE. They were the Tlatilco culture, who were likely to have lived in stratified cities and a useful trading relation for the Olmecs. Both the Olmecs and the Tlatilco enjoyed creating figurines. One of the more well-known Tlatilco figurines is a very strange object. A human being resting his head on his hands, with his body curled up behind him until his feet are resting on the top of his head. He is called the Acrobat and he is ceramic, but he also has a hole in his left knee maybe so that liquid could be poured into the void. Other similar artefacts have been discovered. After the disappearance of the Olmecs, we can start seeing the emergence of future Mesoamerican civilizations, such as the ones that we will cover in the next volume of the podcast. The Zapotecs and the Mayans are examples. Manioc In last week's episode about the Chavin culture of ancient Peru, we discussed the content of the artwork of the Teo obelisk, which was recovered from the type site of Chavin de Huantar. One of the items identified was the manioc, which is also known as the cassava or the yuca, depending on where you come from. In the modern world, It is an extremely important crop which is used in animal feed, medication and tapioca, among other things. However, studying the history of its domestication is also important, as it is one of the first widespread domesticated crops 
of the Americas. Eaten raw, the manioc can prove to be quite toxic, so the earliest peoples of the Americas needed to master the art of removing the toxicity. However, the same issue was faced when domesticating potatoes where the tubers were not suitable for human consumption due to their alkalinity. So humans would have had a very early understanding of the importance and benefits of well-prepared tubers, which will date back thousands of years before the emergence of any of the civilizations of the Americas. When attempting to pinpoint the areas of origin for the first domesticated manioc, then we look at the areas of Mesoamerica and Amazonia, which are the large areas of rainforest in South America which surround the Amazon River. Firm evidence of manioc domestication dates back to the 18th century BCE in the lands of Peru, specifically in the Casma Valley. These people would have been related to the Casma Sechin culture, which we mentioned in last week's podcast, who would have fallen under the influence of the Chabin culture in later years. So if we take a general overview of this area of the Americas from 3,000 years ago, we can determine that most of Mesoamerica and the area of Amazonia north of the Amazon River itself would have a culture much more advanced to domestication of crops such as maize and manioc than those hunter-gatherer societies of other regions. When studying the mapping projects of those who desire to geographically recognise the areas of the Americas that transition between hunter-gatherer lifestyles to domesticated crops, it does appear that the culture spread southwards from northern Amazonia to the areas south of the Amazon during the first millennium BCE. Pacific Coast Cultures Last week we focused on ancient Peru. Peru is actually a modern country but we recognise it as the land of a very advanced way of life in the Americas. We can also include the lands of the modern countries of Ecuador and Colombia in this South American area of advanced ancient cultures. Last week we spoke of the Paracas culture, which was touched by the highly influential Chabin culture. One of the most important discoveries relating to the Paracas culture was the recovery of a large number of bodies preserved in woven cloths. However, there is evidence of this kind of practice dating back much earlier than the Paracas. From around the year 7000 BCE onwards, peoples who relied heavily on fishing opportunities began to emerge as distinct cultures of the lands of southern Peru and northern Chile. Now if you remember back to episode 18 where we discussed ancient Egyptian religion, we talked about the presence of natron salt in the earth whose fluid absorption properties led to the unusual preservation of buried human bodies and the subsequent knowledge gained by the Egyptians which led to their mummification processes. A similar thing happened in the Americas. If we visit the far north of Chile, then we can see a similar progression of culture. In the desert lands, 
naturally mummified remains have been discovered dating to 9,000 years ago. However, deliberate mummification has been found in this area of South America, which is dated to 7,000 years ago. And this is 2,000 years before the first evidence of deliberate mummification in Egypt. The first discovery of mummies in this area was at a place called Chinchorro Beach in northern Chile. And this has led to the culture being named the Chinchorro culture. We believe that the people of the Chinchorro started out as fishermen before becoming influenced by agriculture in later years. Meanwhile, as we have already discovered, other pyramid building cultures were emerging in the north in modern Peruvian lands during the 3rd millennium BCE, such as the Norte Chico and the El Paraiso. Generally, these lands would go on to be influenced by the Chabin when going into the 1st millennium BCE. To the north and in the lands of the modern country of Ecuador, another culture began to flourish, while the Chabin began to expand their area of influence to the south. We call this culture the Chorrera culture and they are characterised by their expert ceramic and metalworking and their wide range of hunting skills as demonstrated by the wide array of animals that they ate, both marine and terrestrial. It is believed that a volcanic eruption from Palulawa caused the rapid decline and subsequent disappearance of the Chorrera, but we don't have any evidence of a knock-on effect on the Chabin. Another notable construction of the ancient lands of northern Peru is a three and a half thousand year aqueduct. This mysterious aqueduct has been tentatively date as some experts claim it to be older, but it is a feat of water management. Its location is at a place called Cumbamayo, and the aqueduct was constructed to bring waters down from the mountain to the nearby settlement. The aqueduct is around five miles in length and rather than it being a straight line water channel there are zigzag kinks along the way which some claim to be an attempt to slow down the speed of the water flow and subsequently slow down the silting effect. Some of the stone carvings otherwise known as petroglyphs directly relating to the aqueduct can be closely compared to the petroglyphs of the Chavin culture, which would have been starting to become more influential to the south. South America Elsewhere in South America, there appears to be a gradual desire to transition from hunter-gatherer lifestyles to sedentary agrarian cultures. We know that the Chavin of Peru carved images of animals that are more at home around the Amazon River than the Andean Mountains, so this would surely suggest that there was a connection between the two regions. We cannot categorically say whether the Chavin ventured into the Amazon Valley or whether Amazonians migrated to the Andes, or indeed 
whether there was a simple trade relationship. For many years it was thought that the lands of the Amazon River were sparsely populated, with the rainforests being too dangerous and unsuitable for human habitation. However, more recently there has been another theory that there could be a possibility of forest gardening communities living in rainforests throughout ancient times. This would have involved the management and cultivation of the plants of the rainforest so that the fruits, nuts and herbs could be cultivated for human consumption. To the south of the rainforests are the savannah lands of South America such as the Gran Chaco of western Paraguay and northern Argentina. The Gran Chaco maintained a hunter-gatherer lifestyle whereas the lands of Chile to its west, Bolivia to its north and Brazil and Uruguay to its east began to transition to farming during the first millennium BCE. Going further south and into the Patagonian lands of southern Chile and Argentina we see that societies were much more inclined to stick to hunter-gathering lifestyles. The grasslands to the east would stay very traditional, whereas the rugged lands of the west were much better suited to maritime hunting, which must suggest that shellfish gathering was popular too. The Far North Let us now completely switch focus. We have explored Mesoamerica and then gradually moved southwards into the rainforests of Amazonia. We also focused on the highly advanced cultures of the northern Andes in the lands of Peru and Ecuador. Then moving southwards into the semi-arid savannah and grasslands south of the rainforests. Finally, we reached the far south of the Americas where societies stayed with more traditional methods of living. Now that we have gone as far south as we can, let's go to the very far north, to the areas where we tend to believe that human migration into the Americas happened in the first place. We tend to think of the first people of the Americas migrating southwards, but also we find that people were migrating to the colder lands of the northeast where a series of island hops would ultimately lead to the island of Greenland. A large natural waterway exists in the northeast of Greenland which has come to be known as Independence Fjord. And it is here where cultures called Independence Cultures initially emerged in perhaps around 2400 BCE. One of the most noted archaeologists who investigated the earliest cultures of this area of the world is Count Eigil Knut, born near the city of Copenhagen, Denmark, in 1903. He worked particularly and extensively in Greenland during the 1930s and 1940s, and he has discovered much about these independence cultures. Knut would continue to study this area of the world right up until the 1990s before he passed away in 1996 at the grand old age of 92. 
We owe a lot to Canute for his work and our subsequent knowledge of historic Greenland. It appears that the first independence culture was a very basic society living in small groups of around 30 or 40 people in small dwellings, much more reminiscent of the earliest Neolithic societies who inhabited the planet 10,000 years earlier. Vegetation was sparse in this area of the world, but mammalian life was not, and there were many choices of large terrestrial and marine mammal to provide food and resource to the people of this culture living in some of the coldest lands that early humans had ever inhabited. The large muskox was the successful bovine animal of this area and fed on the sparse vegetation that it would seek out and dig out of the snow and earth in this area. This animal could provide a great deal of meat for a group of families and its thick hairy hide would have been terrific for retaining warmth which would have been essential. Walrus, seal and narwhal would have been the most popular marine mammals. The first independence culture would have been among the societies referred to generally as the Arctic small tool tradition which can be attributed to many of the Arctic Ocean facing ancient human cultures of Alaska, Canada and Greenland. The first independence culture mysteriously disappeared around 1000 BCE. Frozen human remains were found further south in Greenland which are believed to have belonged to a culture which lived a similar life of subsistence to the Independence One culture at a very similar time. This culture has been called the Sakak culture. All of this demonstrates something that can be easily overlooked. The human being is one of the most adaptable mammals on the planet. The fact that an animal that essentially evolved into its modern form in the hot grasslands of Africa was able to migrate to the Arctic tundra and use the resources of the area to survive is absolutely astonishing and says a lot about how incredible we are as an animal. The Canadian islands such as Baffin, Ellesmere and Victoria are associated with pre-Dorset cultures which are not regarded as hugely different from the other Arctic cultures that we have already mentioned. But if we go down the east coast to the island of Newfoundland, we can see evidence of an archaeological site with its own story to tell. Port Oshua is the archaeological site and it is closely associated with the Dorset cultures which emerged there around 2000 years ago. However, a large burial site was also discovered there which dates back a lot earlier. The graves are believed to date back even as far as the 3rd millennium BCE but there have been no structural remains discovered. Some experts state that the societies who buried these bodies decided to have their graveyard 
far from their dwellings. But we must also pay attention to the claim that the site of the dwellings could have been taken by the ocean, as sea levels are believed to have been lower during this period. Once again, we do believe that the societies on this island would have been a maritime culture. The area of the USA Generally speaking, Canadian lands are mostly made up of subarctic forest until you approach its southern border with the United States of America. When studying the ancient United States, there does appear to be a division between east and west, with the eastern cultures heading towards sedentary agricultural ways of life much earlier than those cultures in the west. Hoggup Cave is a site of great archaeological interest in the modern US state of Utah. It can be found to the west of the Great Salt Lake. The site demonstrates that hunter-gatherers were operating in the area of the cave from the middle of the 7th millennium BCE onwards. The favoured animals for hunting were deer, pronghorn and bison and the favoured plant used for seed gathering was the pickleweed. Not only can we see evidence of hunting equipment such as projectile points, but we can also see evidence of domestic dogs from the bones excavated. During the course of the second millennium BCE, changes in climate may have caused the people of this area to change their hunter-gathering priorities, such as less pickleweed and deer, and more pronghorn and bison. However, the people of this area definitely retained their hunter-gatherer lifestyle, with no evidence of agrarianism. Another archaeological site in Utah is called Danger Cave, and it was occupied even earlier and contains evidence of pots and baskets which would not be uncommon for a seed-gathering culture. Coastal areas would understandably have a marine connection when it came to their diet, and this appears to be the lifestyle of West Coast societies from the modern Canadian province of British Columbia, all the way down through the modern US states of Washington, Oregon and California, and all the way down to the Baja California Peninsula. It is as we head eastwards across the modern United States that things start to become interesting in terms of advancing ancient cultures. Poverty Point in the modern US state of Louisiana is a fascinating archaeological site which provides a window into the second millennium BCE. Earthworks can be found dating back a couple of thousand years before the society emerged at Poverty Point. However, the earthworks at Poverty Point are very interesting. They are thought to have been constructed in around 1500 BCE. Six semicircular elliptical ridges surround a central plaza, thought to be the site of ceremonial ritual. This is not unlike the circular plazas of Mesoamerica and South America. 
It might not even be out of the question that this site at Poverty Point was a cultural centre or a site of pilgrimage, much like Chabin de Huantar, the central site of the Chabin culture of last week's episode. Certainly, there does seem to be considerable evidence of a wide trade network in the southern United States during the second millennium BCE, as can be seen by the wide scattering of artefacts created from many different materials. What we cannot be sure of is how agrarian the tribes and societies of the Poverty Point culture were, and we also cannot be completely sure what happened to the culture when it seems to have mysteriously disappeared in around 1100 BCE. Overview There are still a great number of questions which are heavily debated when discussing the Americas and especially the prehistoric and ancient cultures of the lands of the modern United States. How early did sedentary lifestyles begin and how closely related was it to agrarianism? Does the excavation of evidence of domesticated varieties of crops tell us anything about societies becoming sedentary or stratified? Can nomadic societies build strong trade networks without permanent homes or even with just a ceremonial and administrative centre? One of the biggest clues we have regarding stratification is in the burial sites. On the eastern side of the United States we have evidence of the rich and the poor which can be determined from the burials. Earthworks and mounds point towards a society which was governed by a priesthood as opposed to a secular monarchy. If we are correct about this then we have described a similar scenario in South America at Chabindahuantar which was also the home of a small agrarian city which was undoubtedly stratified. We have little evidence of warfare among the Chavin culture but we have to be extremely careful if we want to try to assume that warfare did not exist. It might even be that the influence of the spiritual Chavin culture had an influence on the aggression of societies. Petroglyphs or stone carvings at Cerro Tsechin dated to around 2000 BCE depict warrior priests holding weapons aloft celebrating victory over the slaughtered human remains of their unfortunate victims. So warfare was known and success was celebrated in the Peruvian lands of 4000 years ago. It would be in Mesoamerica that progress took humankind to the next level. We would not see secularism go far beyond short-lived chiefdoms or priesthoods until the rise of the Zapotecs in the middle of the first millennium BCE. Such was the population booms of the southern lands of modern Mexico that the inevitable progressions would follow. The management of large-scale settlements such as Monte Alban and the threat of local uprisings meant that spiritual influence has to make way 
for the military nation state and the history of the Americas would begin a new chapter. We will need to wait until volume 3 of the podcast to find out more about the Zapotec culture but it will also lead us nicely into other stories such as what happened in Peru after the decline of the Chavin culture, the emergence of the highly revered city of Teotihuacan in modern Mexico and the emergence of the ancestors of the Mayans, one of the most famous cultures of the pre-Columbian Americas. In my lifetime, sadly, I have heard people discredit the history of the Americas and particularly the United States, dismissing it as a relatively new country with a comparatively unimpressive history. As somebody who has always particularly enjoyed studying aspects of American history, I am full of confidence that I can discredit those who are dismissive of American history. We have just started the story of an area of the world unique in its path from the rest of the world, and even after the Colombian exchange still retains an astonishing level of uniqueness which it will be my pleasure to discuss in future episodes. Thank you very much for listening to this week's podcast about the archaic period of the Americas. And now we really are starting to run out of places to go in order to continue the story of the ancient world. And so therefore there will be a couple of episodes around the subjects of weaponry and the subjects of medicinal practices that we'll cover before we round off with an ancient history summary of the world. So we've only got about three episodes left before this volume comes to a close. Now, I received a great message this week from a gentleman called Joop Hegger uh, from the Netherlands, who said, uh, Hi Chris, uh, the History of the World podcast has accompanied me while travelling across Europe this summer, your calm and clear voice being a nice constant in the changing landscapes. I particularly enjoy the podcast balance between highly interesting details and a clear general overview It certainly filled many gaps in my knowledge of what has brought us humans to the point of where we are now. I also greatly appreciate your persistence in mentioning the points in the story where evidence-based narrative has to give way to educated guessing and for inviting everyone to guess along online. It sympathetically points to history being a balancing act between ever-evolving evidence and interpretation and invites your audience not to just passively listen to the story, but to actively think along, and perhaps even conduct some amateur research themselves. Excellent job. Looking forward to the next episode. Well, thank you very much, Yoop. And uh, you're right, Jess, it's uh, one of those things when I'm churning out as many episodes as I am, sometimes my research will be sort of brushing the surface a little bit, so um, definitely you should always look further into these things if you have any doubts or you want to know more 
It's um, you know, it's really as I've said in previous podcasts, it's just a, a way to open a door into the the study of further history. Now, I also need to thank Youp for his kind pledge to the project and he's done that through the Patreon website. So he's a new member of what we call the History of the World podcast Illuminati. So thank you very much, Youp. And also we'd like to welcome Arthur Chin, another new patron of the project and once again a member of the History of the World podcast Illuminati. You join Andy Hardy, Eric G. Young, Jerry Paulus, Karen Pleschetsnig, Kevin Koch, Kevin McFadden, Mark Veldman, Matt Hayden and Matty Yokimo as members of the History of the World podcast Illuminati. And it was Matty Yokimo, one of my longest serving Illuminati members, who actually suggested something. And I hope maybe those of you with acute hearing may have, uh, may have heard it this week. The lack of mouse clicking, um, which Matty pointed out to me, he was getting. He said, it's, "You know, it's you can hear it in the background." And as such, I've taken his advice and invested in a couple of silent mouses, um, and I've used the donations made to the History of the World podcast to do that. So, thank you for the suggestion, Matty. I hope it's made the relevant improvements. And then another thing that was pointed out to me this week was the fact that. Um, it can be maybe a little bit off-putting that the this section of the podcast, when the when the podcast in the bulk part of the podcast is over, the fact that I go rambling on for maybe longer than I should at the end of the podcast. So maybe I'll post a poll and we'll look at ways of perhaps condensing it. But for me, I do absolutely love to recognise those people who have got in touch and give a, a nice response on the air to it and um, the reason why I put it on the end of the podcast is so that you can skip it if you don't want to listen to it um, the first part of the podcast I like to get straight into the information for the benefit of the listener now please 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 don't forget to visit the History of the World podcast website we are posting new uh, things on the discussion forum at the moment we want to know what your favourite sets of cognate words are, that is words that have the same origin in Indo-European languages. And we also want to know what you think happened in the late Bronze Age collapse, why you think that happened. And did the culture in the Americas develop from the cultures of Asia or did they develop autonomously, independently and all by themselves? If you have an opinion, come and join us on the discussion forum and let us know what you think. So I think we'll wrap it up there, folks. Next week, we'll be looking at ancient weaponry. We'll be going right back to prehistory and telling the story of the development of weapons through the ancient period. So we'll be sort of skirting over some of the things that we've already found out and bringing it right up to date with some good fundamental knowledge of what's going on. Don't forget that if you want to support the podcast, if you go over to our Patreon page and you can sign up to make a monthly donation, there are rewards available for those of you who donate. And uh, if you can't find the link, just go to the historyoftheworldpodcast.com website and you'll be able to find it there. If you can't spare any loose change to donate to the podcast, that's no problem. 
just rate and review the podcast on your chosen podcast platform and that can be just as valuable. Anyway, enough. Let's uh, leave it for another week and uh, we'll look forward to getting together again next time for more History of the World podcasts. Until then, have a fantastic week. The History of the World podcast is available on many different podcast platforms. So please, don't forget to rate and review us wherever you find us. Visit our website at historyoftheworldpodcast.com and email us at historyoftheworldpodcast at mail.com. Support the podcast at Patreon by clicking the Support the Podcast link at our website and join us on social media at Facebook, Twitter and Tumblr.